This podcast is sponsored by Jabra Enhance. Getting hearing aids is no picnic. It's expensive, confusing, time-consuming, right? Actually, no. With the Jabra Enhance Select and Premium Package, you can get state-of-the-art hearing aids and professional care without the hassle. Jabra Enhance offers advanced rechargeable hearing aids delivered to your door for thousands less than you'd expect. No offices, no waiting rooms. Just take the online hearing test to personalize your hearing aids. Enjoy speech clarity, noise reduction, and hearing technology that adapts to your unique sound environments. And the audiology team can provide adjustments to your hearing aids remotely on request for three years. And the best part? You'll likely pay thousands less than if you went to a traditional audiologist. And now for a limited time, save $200 when you order Jabra Enhanced Select Hearing Aids with promo code PODCAST. Go to jabraenhanced.com and enter promo code PODCAST to save. jabraenhanced.com code PODCAST. For eligible individuals 18 and older in 50 United States and Washington, D.C. with mild to moderate hearing loss only, audiology team may not be able to program hearing aids for some types of hearing loss. See website for details and important safety information. Welcome to the Stranded Technologies Podcast. I'm your host and founder of Infinita Fund, Nicholas Anzinger. In this show, we talk about how to accelerate the future. Our thesis is that many life-improving technologies are held back by institutional barriers. How can we unblock vast opportunities while mitigating against the risks? What ethical principles, rules, and regulations can guide us on that path? We will discuss these questions with entrepreneurs, policymakers, and industry experts. If you enjoy the show, please give us five stars and visit us at infinitafunds.com to join the community. All right. So today is March the 17th in 2023, and my guest is Gabriel Delgado Ayau. Gabriel is the co-founder and chief development officer of Prosper, the modern charity city in Honduras, where I'm moving to. This is a conversation that I've been preparing mentally for a long time and it was hard to prepare because there's so much to talk about. Gabriel and I met during the first ever independent conference that I organized in Prosper in April 2022. I fell in love with the Prosper community. Gabriel and I became, and Gabriel became a friend to me and a mentor that I look up to. Gabriel is an experienced, of course, Gabriel is an experienced entrepreneur from Guatemala. We'll talk about his backgrounds and lessons learned as an entrepreneur, as well as the interesting story of his family. His grandfather, Manuel Ayao, is the founder of uh, Universidad Francisco Moraquin in Guatemala, the only libertarian university in Latin America. We'll also do a deep dive into what Prospera is, how it came about and where it's going. In the process, we'll touch on issues such as public good funding, tokenizing real estate, Georgian land taxes, and how Prospera deals with land. So these are all ideas that have long been marinating in the imagination of some of the smartest and most forward-thinking people in the world, but we could never experiment with them in practice until now. And this is what excites me about, about most about Prospera. We can finally experiment in the real world, coupling new approaches with proven best practices. So anyway, before I ramble, Gabriel, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Uh, pleasure to be here. And I know we've talked about doing this for a while, so I'm, I'm excited. I have to warn you, I don't have all the answers. <laughs> well, that's what we're, what we're here yeah. for, to, to figure things out, right? Exactly, exactly. You want to tell the story of how we met from your perspective? Sure, sure. So we, there was a, an initiative, I think it was you and, um, and Cute Davis, Davis Clute, yeah. Davis Cute, yeah, Davis Cute. Sorry, um, who had this initiative to look this prosper thing? It's great, but we don't know much about it. Let's do a summit, and you, basically, you guys did everything, and we just said, "Hey, we love the idea. 
how can we help? And we, we were, we were supportive. I believe it turned out into one of those amazing meetups of brilliant minds, people that really want to make a difference in the world, uh, and that are willing to not just do that ideologically, but actually roll up their sleeves and, 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 and do that. And well, I think you're a great example of that. You actually rolled up your sleeves and created this fund. Uh, but there were some other people there as well that exactly the same feeling. And so, you know, in talking to you and talking to some of the other people there, you know, we always had this hypothesis that at the end of the day, government is a platform for entrepreneurship, if you think of it that way, right? So you need a, a basic set of rules so that people can, when they have disputes, solve those disputes easily, uh, uh, you know, a set of guardrails. At the end of the day, what that does is it, it, it empowers entrepreneurs to go and, 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 and try some amazing ideas. And so seeing you guys come down to Prospera, see what we were doing and become excited about it was, was a validation that was immense. And then, of course, as, as, as happens with people that are like-minded, we, we became friends. And I think it's been super enriching for Prospera, for, you know, the rest of our community, for me personally, absolutely. So yeah, I think it was a great thing. And, and now you have more conferences and we're, I think we're more engaged in that. And I think that that's the best way to, to get, to get the word out. Yeah, exactly. So for anyone listening who wants to join this growing community, there are several conferences on the Infinita website under the events section, the next one is focused on healthcare and biotech on April 21 to 23. Another one on decentralizing finance, including fintech and crypto on May 5 to 7, and a legal engineering hackathon to develop yeah. sort of better legal guardrails and regulations for things where there's not been the right regulations developed so far, like DAO legal wrappers, well, longevity and geroscience, and DAOs as corps, right? They DACs. So if you're an innovative lawyer, you should join us for that. You should, you should. The people that come down to those are, are, are amazing. Yeah. Yeah. That's what excites me most about it. Right. So I came because I read the Scott Alexander article that was talking about, which I just mentioned, right? So some of the brightest minds in, in history have thought, how could we do things differently? How could we kind of have something like regulatory flexibility? property rights in 3D, air rights, and how could we use all these, you know, better governance practices like sunset clauses and there's all these things that we know how to fix things in the real world yep. in many of the big countries in the United States, but it's just impossible to initiate a process to do that. So that's why it needs these experiments. That's exactly. why this, this article excited me so much, but I really, what I came, what I, what made me, that made me come, but what really made me stay is the community. Right. So super great team behind it. You and Eric and Trey and Jay Robertson, Jorge Colindres and the whole, uh, the Hondurans that are, that are part of it. Right. So their, th their message was, Hey, I can help lift my own country out of poverty. So they were treating it yeah. as kind of a life's mission, not just another business at that building. Exactly. I think that's a big, the big difference, right? And uh, that people that come and want to participate are passionate about not just making a bunch of money by adding some value to, you know, their community. They're really looking at this as this is a way to transform the country. One thing I can tell you is that I'm absolutely convinced that trying to change the system from within the system is practically impossible. Just the incentives are completely misaligned. Yeah. Yeah. That's what definitely what I touched on in the conversation. Um, yeah. 
to get there, can you give listeners a bit of a background of Gabriel the man? What experiences sure. most define you as a person? Happy to do so. Um, as you as you said, I'm I'm from Guatemala, but I have a bit of a an American accent, as I'm, I'm people tell me. And I went to school in the U.S. when I was when I was young, and uh, you know, people that lived in this part of the world are exposed to a bunch of things that aren't uh, very nice: uh, violence, just random violence or targeted violence, uh, poverty, and and just a bunch of issues. And my father decided that it was much better for me to to, to go for me and my brother actually to go study abroad because. He felt that the situation in the country was completely unsafe. He'd had personal experiences with, with lack of safety. Um, and I, I mentioned this because this is part of what ties it into my experience around Prospera. So I went to the States and I, I was exposed to, you know, a different world than, than, than what was possible in, in the country. Uh, one of my big heroes was Steve Jobs and a bunch of the Silicon Valley early uh, entrepreneurs. So I, I wanted to come back and basically create uh, businesses in the tech sector because I thought it was a, really the coolest sector. You were solving these amazing problems using technology. So I came what back. What year was uh, that? After, this, was, uh, uh, this was in 92. So just as- 92, just wow. As the, so the tech the sector internet. was not yet like hyped. It was no, 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 just no, no, emerging no. Was, when the internet was- It was just emerging. I'm, I'm 55. So I, you know, I remember a time before the internet <laughs> quite clearly, actually. But these guys were doing amazing things. And I, I, I had uh, my first uh, Apple computer, which was before the Mac. Loved it, uh, played around with it quite a bit. And then I came back and I, I you know, I, I thought, you know, I, I, my family's been traditionally in coffee. So we're, we're coffee exporters and growers. And, but I didn't want to do any of that. I wanted to do, I wanted to do my own thing and, and wanted to jump on, into entrepreneurship. So I started my first company when I was, when I was 28 in the tech sector, tech services sector, I would say, right when the, when the internet was, was beginning to really take off in, in this part of the world. And, you know, then it just sort of accelerated. I, that company, six years later, we'd sold it. Uh, so I started another one and, uh, you know, it was, it's funny because I, you, if you're successful in your first venture, many times you believe you have the magic touch and whatever you touch is going to be perfect and it's going to work out. And after that, I went, I, I went broke a couple of more times with a few other ideas with another, I, I was successful again. So I've, I've had a run of good opportunities. Um, and I've learned a lot. I've learned a lot more as they always say with my failures, but I, I did begin to realize that there were a lot of obstacles to really growing a business and having a market of a, of a reasonable size in my own country. We, you needed to really look at multi-country, uh, enterprises to have any sort of decent sized market. And then operating in all these countries, they all impose different taxes. Uh, there were no tax agreements between them. So you ended up paying an arm and a leg in taxes, getting basically no services in exchange. It just sucked, 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 sucked. And, it, and um, on the other side, you know, as you mentioned early on, my grandfather had founded this university that basically uh, the idea was to educate the people in the business world, these entrepreneurs, businessmen, women, uh, on the realities, on the fundamentals of what creates a thriving economy, what generates prosperity. So on the one hand, I was experiencing all this terrible bureaucratic, you know, turmoil. And on, on the other hand, I was, I was listening to my grandfather just explain how things, if they were put together correctly, could generate just massive amounts of prosperity. And, and he would point out, look, Hong Kong, you know, Singapore, they were just as poor as we were uh, back in the 50s. So what the hell, what's going on? Why can't we do the same thing? 
And so I became very, very much exposed to that. And uh, this growing, um, you know, desiring me to see things change. Uh, I think we live in a very privileged part of the world. As you know, you know, we have amazing weather. Uh, Pacific and the Atlantic are, you know, a few hours away from each other. Uh, you can move goods. You can, you can one day have fun in the, uh, in the Caribbean and the other day be in the Pacific Ocean. You can go surf. You, there's so many things. There's culture. And yet we are unable to really uh, leverage that so that the whole population could be in a, in a significant bits, better situation. Those were my motivations really to start. And, and that's really been my career. I've, at this point, I think I've started about 17 companies, a bunch of failures, a bunch of successes. Uh, I, I really love entrepreneurship. I think creativity and just the feeling of creating something new, even if it's just a, a pivot from what exists, is, is an amazing feeling. But but entrepreneurs are the heroes of the world. They're the ones that create the value. And they have a great supporting cast of people that come and, and join them who then turn on into entrepreneurs in their own right. And we just make it more difficult for these guys. You know, what the, what the hell? I mean, we should be make it easy, easy. Let's make it easy because this is where all the value originates, right? All the in, in, in innovation. And no, we make it hard. We make it hard. And now to my complete dismay, it's being made hard, harder in the U.S., in Canada, in what we used to think as the bastions of liberty. It's, it's becoming much, much harder. Uh, and that's scary and disappointing. Scary because when the U.S. Uh, gets uh, uh, the flu, Latin America gets pneumonia, you know, you know, we're out for the count. And when, uh, and, and, and so the culture and, and what happened in the U.S., particularly for Central America, I would say is super, super important. And to see things the way they're going um, in the U.S. right now, it, it's quite concerning. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it goes a bit in both directions, right? I had a, a discussion with John Chisholm in episode 17, where you also have like the internet and software now that helps you with like accounting with taxes that makes it easy for you to store data in the cloud and to pay your employees internationally even. There's all these things that at the same time is a growing set of regulations. There is um, labor laws are becoming more strict in many ways and yep. um, lawsuits are often a big um, risk for companies. Yep. Um, so there's all these other things that make it harder while other, other things get easier. And it's hard to say what is on that balance, but probably it, at least in some industries, it's very, very hard, right? So biotech, hardware, right? So now increasingly also crypto in the United States, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, no, I, I, I think that the innovations that have happened around the inform information technologies have allowed us to outpace the bureaucratic uh, hurdles that we've had to jump through as entrepreneurs. And so the increased productivity we were gaining through IT helped offset a lot of the things, but that's catching up. So now you're seeing the situation where, well, we don't know what's going to happen with AI, which is just an amazing tool. It might revolutionize everything, but you can see how things in the tech world took off because that's where the low barriers and regulation existed. And, uh, you know, in the hardware side and the atom side, things were not like that at all tremendous slowdowns and um, in, in, in the pace of things. I mean, I, I'm hopeful the human race is always, I'm always an optimist. The human race has always managed to outpace or, or, or overcome these issues. But, yeah, but yeah. Phil, I, I still think that you can be on the sidelines looking at things, or you can be in the arena trying to push forward the 
ideas and and the and the projects that can actually create that type of innovation and prosperity and just solve the biggest problems in the world. First off, what is Prospera and why is why is Prospera? Let me try to use a couple of analogies. Um, Prospera is a is a is a sort of a special economic zone. It's on steroids, I would say. It's 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 a uh, a part of Honduras. In this case, this is where Prospera is operating right now. Though I'll I'll, I'll go into the model and how we can go beyond beyond just Honduras. Um, but that allows for uh, a number of reforms in the regulatory environment, basically to drive stability, to reduce risk, uh, and to attract tremendous amounts of investment. Typically, a free zone, a typical free zone, just lowers taxes, and it's it's a it's a, a race to the bottom, really. Free zones with zero taxation now, and and they just play them out with the amount of time. Now, what that does is it just does attract a lot of investment. So. But we also think of Prospera beyond just the pure, uh, say, manufacturing and services side, the business side of the thing. It's really, it's really a, a, a city that has a new regulatory environment to allow massive amounts of, in, of innovation within existing countries. So it's, it's, it's um, yeah, it's a, it's a type of jurisdiction that allows for reform inside of a country uh, to generate prosperity on a massive scale. Uh, and the likes of, at least in Latin America, which has not been seen. And there are good examples of this in other parts of the world. You know, Dubai, I think, is the closest example of what it is. It's in the Emirates. And they have a completely different regulatory environment in what's known as, as Dubai. But it was promoted by the authority in, in the Emirates. The same as other examples uh, in, in China, they were promoted by, by the government. And the difference here is that this is, this is these prosper and the other two that exist are fully promoted by private parties. doesn't mean that they're run by private parties. There is a government structure there, public government structure there, but they're promoted by, by, by government. So it's a massive community with new rules um, or, or aims to be a massive community with new rules uh, just to drive gener- uh, innovation and prosperity. Great. And it's located on a very beautiful island on yes. Roatan, right? Yes. So... Caribbean vibes, really nice beaches, very jungly on the island. Um, yep. One part of it of the continuous storage is a green field with lots of construction going on, the better building. The other is Pristine Bay that kind of came ready-made. Yep. It has very high-end yep. resorts and villas. Yep. And also discontinuous territory. So land on different parts of the island and including even a port. Can you talk a bit more about how that's possible? How can you have land that's or kind of a discontinuous zone and incorporate more land into it and more businesses into it? As you say, Roatan is an amazing island, named one of the top 10 islands in the Caribbean. It's, it's quite underdeveloped still. And it's, it's enormous. It's the size of the original island of Hong Kong uh, and very rugged. It's mountainous and it's, the views are stunning. And, uh, you know, we have this building going up there, Duna, that's just the views are to die for. And the units are very affordable. So, yes, so the, that, that, the ability to add more land to it and, and the fact that it doesn't have to be contiguous is an amazing innovation that the creators of the framework put together. What they did is they, they said, look, we, these zones need to exist where there's no previous uh, uh, population density. By frameworks, you mean the ZA organic law in Honduras, right? So I, I can explain a little bit about that if you want. So what, what happened was back in the, in the, in the, about 2008, 2009, Honduras found itself in a very delicate situation on the world stage. 
a lot of uh, commercial partners that shut the door to Honduras and they, and they, and, and the government in power decided that they really need to do something very, very deep to generate prosperity because they, they, they were one of the poorest countries in Latin America. So they created what became the ZEDE framework. And the ZEDE is the name of the, of the special economic zone. It stands for Zones for Employment and Economic Development in Spanish. And they, and, and they knew that the government of Honduras would not have the capital, nor, nor would it have access to the capital to promote these zones. And they needed to be of a certain type of scale. And that's what we call them, you know, charter cities, because what it's referring to really is an agglomeration of a community in, in some sort of density uh, that generates uh, economies of scale and innovation and collision of ideas. So they created this framework and, and they created the framework as a, an autonomous institution of the government. So once it, it's created and spun out into the wild, it functions independently from the rest of, of the government, but it's under the constitution. Uh, and and it, it's it's an integral part of the country. So it's not it's not a country within a country. It's not autonomous in the sense that it's that's independent. It's it's an uh, an autonomous area, but integral integrally part of the country. And so that framework is created to be used by private promoters. So Prosper is a private promoter of one of these zones, and we as founders had a very clear idea of what what it was that we thought was needed. So we used a framework in conjunction with this government institution uh, to frame what we thought was the most forward thinking, the most free, uh, uh, and you, you can actually measure that in the Doing Business Index uh, of the World Bank, the most free jurisdiction in the world, um, and that allowed for the most uh, innovation and, and et cetera. That's how um, we started to promote. We created the framework, created the, the regulatory environment and the law allowed for discontinuous properties to be incorporated. So in Roatan, we have three properties, three large properties that are not contiguous. Two of them are quite close to each other and one is not, but we can apply the same regulatory environment to all three discontinuous areas. It makes sense to have them close together just because of economies of scale. Uh, but again, they do not have to be contiguous. Um, and we also have a, a location on the mainland that's more geared towards manufacturing, uh, manufacturing logistics, though it's also going to be residential. All of our zones are work, uh, are live, work, and play. So, you know, the idea is to have everything. You have your family there. You have everything inside, and you can go in and out and use the rest of the, of the country because, you know, you're part of the country. But uh, it's not, the idea is not to have just an industrial park where only machines and workers uh, operate, but actually people get to enjoy the benefits as well. You know, the security benefits for one thing and, and the tax benefits, and those apply to people as well. And it, that's really what's most important. We all, everything we do is for people. It's a, at the end of the day, it's a, it's a human centric development approach. You know, we are here for people, not for machines and for people living here, not for people that are the owners that live in Germany or in England or in the U.S. They have already great lives. What we're doing here is for the people that are Honduran. Um, yeah, and and help me paint the picture a bit because what I what I think is so interesting or about the ZA law that really it really makes it possible to start as a startup, right? So you don't need to have like one large territory and like loads of capital to develop it. You can start with a small amount of land. And then there's a process where you buy land legitimately from its owner. And then there's um, 
there's a governing body that approves the integration to be part of the zone and under its laws, right? You can do, so the ZEDA is a, is a very flexible framework, uh, the ZEDA framework, and it allows, as you say, for an organic project that really focuses just on industry. So there, there's a zone in the south of the country that's just agricultural at this point. It, it, it did plan to grow eventually to incorporate other facets of, of life, but for as, as initially it was just agriculture. And then you have um, Ciudad Morazan, which is near San Pedro Sula, uh, that, it, that its original focus was a residential and serve, a residential area and so, a services industry. And they were, they were relatively small. The agricultural one wasn't because it's, it's a large agricultural park, but, um, but Morazan was, was, was relatively small. What the Zeta institution looked for was the ability for you to actually have a plan to scale this thing over time. So they didn't want you to start something that would fail because, uh, because it, because if it failed, you know, it would give a bad reputation, especially to the early ones, it would give a bad reputation of the whole institution. Uh, but in practice, yes, you, that's what you could do. You could start with a small zone and then grow it because you can incorporate more and more land and you didn't have to own all the land yourself. So the other neighbor, they wanted to be a part of the project. They can incorporate their land and they would benefit from the new, from the new, uh, you know, zone. But Prosper isn't like that. We do believe that there is a scale at which the level of services that are needed to create a community that really can change the face of a country, for example, needs to exist. Um, and so that's what we aim to do. And that's why we, we created the full stack of, regula of regulations uh, from day one, whereas the other projects were, were, that was not their approach. It was more of a, of a, of a piecemeal approach. And so, so yeah, so you could, you could grow organically, you could use private money. And, and there were some very important things. 90% of all of the employees needed to be Honduran. So that goes, you know, that goes to the idea of the local population needs to be a part of this, needs to be an important stakeholder versus one of the things that we're accused of is this is an enclave for rich libertarians. Nothing could be further from the truth, but of course it's sticky, you know, it's, it's catchy. Oh, rich libertarians, of course they want to do their own thing. Well, no, actually it turns out that's not what it is at all. Can you talk a bit more about the founding history of Prospera? What were the milestones that you had to achieve to get to where you are now? So uh, let me tell you a little bit about how I got into it originally, because I, I it, it sort of feeds into the story, um, which I think is a very nice story. Uh, in 2009, uh, I had, my, my grandfather had tried to reform the constitution here in Guatemala and it failed spectacularly. And so I was pretty depressed. <laughs> And um, I, I, I heard through the president of UFM that Honduras was moving forward with these new types of zones that, that whose objectives was to create a Hong Kong, if you want, of, of, of Central America. So I became enamored of that. And there was a conference in 2010 that the university put together and people from all over the world, excuse me, flew down for that conference. Um, and it was amazing. We had people that were forward-thinking people all over the world who'd been thinking about this for a long, long time. And it was on the island of Roatan, and it was in Pristine Bay, which is, of course, now part of Prospero. So it's a, it's a tremendous, tremendously uh, or, or you know, strange circumstance that allowed for that to happen. Um, so I became enamored with the idea of, of this manner of, of, uh, of reforming. Uh, and with, with another group, we began to put together a project. 
Uh, it was based on, on the initial iteration of, of, of the regulatory environment. There was a setback. We had to, we had to stop. Uh, the country created a new institution that was called the Zedes. I put together a new group uh, with, with some of the original founders of the previous group, and we, we went at it again. At that time, uh, Eric Brimmen, who's Prospera CEO uh, who, and, and with whom we co-founded Prospera, was, had put together an idea that was, I think, a little bit ahead of its time, which was a fund to invest in these types of projects around the world. Because he's very passionate, and, and you, at some point, I guess you'll talk to him, but he's very passionate about uh, also the idea of these cities as, as reform vehicles. And so we started talking about his company investing in my company. Um, and he talked to another, a, a number of other people in, in Honduras and around the world. And in 2016 or early 2017, we, we met in Austin and we, you know, we talked for a long time. And Eric told me, no, I think what we need to do, the, the, the space is so young that I think what we need to do is we need to have one project that's successful. And if I'm trying to invest in a bunch of different places and you're down here trying to get this going, we're not focusing our energies into one, into one area so that it could be super, super powerful. So it's sort of like a magnifying glass with sunlight. So why don't we join forces and try to get one project off the ground that's extremely successful? Uh, you know what? I thought it was, I thought it was brilliant. Um, and I signed up, I mean, on the spot, I said, absolutely. Yes. I'd already seen that Eric and I had a lot of the same values. We, we believed in a lot of the same things. And so we basically penciled the agreement then and there. And by the end of that year, we had gone through the whole process with the government of Honduras to get approval on the 20, I think it was a 29th of December. We were notified that our application had been approved of 2017. And then, you know, we were off to the races. We, we'd secured land. Um, the process was first you needed to sec secure land and you needed to present the project, the business plan, that basically outlined your, all of your ideas, where you wanted to head with the project. We presented all of that. Uh, we got some feedback, we adjusted and we, and we were approved and we were like, wow, I can't believe we're approved. Uh, it was amazing. Uh, and then 2018 was a rush of trying to put all of the regulatory framework together, uh, our, our GC is just an amazing guy, Nick Dranius. Uh, he, he, I think has done a lot of the heavy lifting around this uh, with a lot of input from Eric and, and myself and, and other members of the council, who is the entity tasked with creating, uh, the regulatory environment. And before 2018 was out, we had our, our charter created and approved. And we were ready, you know, we were, we were ready to go uh, really to open it up to the world, but we had to wait for about a year before we actually announced it, uh, for different reasons that were not, uh, of prosperous doing that they were more related to, to the government itself. So in 2020, we finally launched and we created the first building, which you've seen, which is the beta building. It's funny because the beta building is one of those names that sort of stuck it wasn't going to be called a beta building, but it was, it was a building to beta test our permitting ability in our regulatory environment in just that. So that's, so that's how that uh, came about. You know, I got to tell you, one thing that's amazing to me is how everything accelerated. We were like the first ones, the only ones, nobody was out in the space. Nobody was talking network states or there've been some people for a long time talking about seasteading and charter cities, but it was a very arid and lonely place out there. And suddenly, boom, you know, 
everybody sort of moved into the space. And it's just, it's just stunning to me. And I'm yeah, really happy to see it. Like for me, it was really the practical possibility, right? So seeing kind of the zero to one, hey, yep. it's possible, right? There is like, and it was, it's, I could always compare it to like blockchain, right? And Bitcoin, because yep. people have been criticizing centralized and monopolized money, right? For a very long time, right? For decades. But all they yep. can do is really, you know, provide a couple of prof professor positions. Right, for people that are talking about it. Yeah. But we as entrepreneurs, we want to fix things. There's nothing really we can do, right? Until uh, Satoshi Nakamoto showed it's possible. He created the zero to one. And then yes. there was kind of a process established. Now this is there and it's possible. I think that's what Prosper really did for me, right? Sort of seeing the zero to one, seeing that it's possible now. That sort of as an entrepreneur gets you going. Hey, now we can now we can work on actually fixing things. Can you talk a bit about the Prosper model beyond Honduras? How can Prosper expand? It's been said that Prosper is a zero to one in the concept of Peter Thiel's book, Zero to One, where you have an innovation that is so powerful that it changes the paradigm of things. Uh, and then Innovations that come after it might be a 1.1, you know, even a 2.0, but even a 2.0 isn't as dramatic as a, a zero to one. I I'd honestly never thought of it that way. Of course, I've read the book and I, I, I like the premises of what's proposed in the book as a business owner, as an entrepreneur. And I do, do think that Prosper is a zero to one. And the reason I think it's a zero to one is because prior to Prospera, there's been hypotheses uh, proposed by a number of brilliant people and even attempts to create these types of zones, but they've never gone as far as we have at this point. And at this point, I think we launched early 2020. And so now we're on our third year of operations, 20, 2021, third year of operation. What, what begins to happen is you begin to see, just like when you plant uh, a garden, you begin to see sprouts, right? Sprouts of what's possible you know, mini circle and, and the shop and, and, uh, area loop and all these guys. And, and then of course we had prosperous here, but then out people outside see it. Uh, and you begin to, as these seeds grow and become stronger, they attract others that want to participate. Uh, and suddenly you begin to see that this model is viable to generate prosperity in a manner and at a speed that's sort of unprecedented. Um, and suddenly what happens is you become a viable model for, uh, other countries to adopt the model of reform becomes a viable model for other countries in a matter that the first one was it, because in the first one, basically what you're contending with is this idea that how are you going to give a private company the ability to create a, a, a city that has autonomy from existing municipal and central government power? How, how are you going to do that? Why are you going to do that? I mean, and, and what a lot of people think and, 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 and argue is that power and the promotion of power should not be in private hands. And in the model of in the model of the Zede, it, in a way it's not either, because what we do, of course, is we create a new public government, which is the Zede government and that's managed by a Honduran and eventually he's elected, et cetera, et cetera. But at the end of the day, 
the first one has a, a lot of opposition because it's outside the current paradigm, right? And so we are the zero to one because we're proving that a new paradigm is possible. And suddenly we, we are one more tool in the tool sh in, in the toolbox. Whereas before, you know, this tool, nobody wanted to harness it. Nobody wanted to engage with it. People thought, you know, there's just going to be abuse. And, you know, of course, companies have been, been made evil for a long time. So, it, you know, it, it falls into a paradigm that is not uh, well seen. So the model for Prosper is, you know, we proved this in Honduras, and this is a very difficult lift that you've experienced how difficult this lift. And, you know, you came in at a time when, when all things that were going well started to go, started to become more difficult with, with an aggressive government uh, that was at, uh, our antagonist. But what, what happens is that, you know, you come to Honduras, you create a great thing for the Honduran uh, population. You prove that people can go from 2,500 of GDP per capita to 25,000 of GDP per capita. And, and suddenly you are beginning to get interest from other countries. And by the way, this has already happened. So we've already been approached by other governments in other countries, you know, interested in, in, in what it is that we're doing, wanting to learn more, wanting to learn about our model. And so imagine, imagine a scenario where we're, you know, seven years into this, five to seven years into this, we've now gone through three governments in Honduras. So we will have, we will, we would have had the government that was a promoter. We would have had the opposing uh, party in government who was the uh, sort of an antagonist. And now we have a new government who may be for or against, but now we have seven years under our belts. Yeah, I don't know, maybe we're at 10,000, a population of 10,000 or a population, uh, a population of 10,000 between people living there and people working there. You know, we're at 1,100 people right now working there. Uh, so that begins to accelerate. Uh, and then, you know, we can go out into the world government market and say, hey, this model is now proven in a country like Honduras. And we know exactly because of all this curve of learning that, we, that we've had, we, need, we know exactly what it is we need to do to implement this in your country. Uh, and we have the investors behind us. We have the interest. We have the, we have the momentum behind us. And now we can bring this to your country. We can help your country uh, generate prosperity. So our business model is uh, promoting these, these, the, this model beyond just Honduras. And in doing so, what, what's interesting that's going to happen is, of course, we will win in some countries. But there will be others that will come into the market, just as they already are, who will think, hey, we can also do that and we can be really good at it. So now you have a very competitive dynamic going on in a model that's proven. And you know, you know what happens in a competitive market, right? I mean, the, the, the cost of providing services begins to decrease significantly. The quality of the services begin to go up significantly because you're in a very competitive environment. You want to serve your customers. So the promise, the, the premise that your residents are your customers rather than they're a captured market because they have no option uh, completely changes. Um, and it's just such a virtuous cycle that, that, you know, you can't help but think this is a much better model for reform. I think Eric Breiman once called it an economic development corporation. It is. Right. That's so what, that's what you're kind of for. the helicopter and the, what's transferable is sort of the common law-based legal system, the regulatory system, um, the e-governance platform, sort of Estonia style, 
Yes. And as soon as you have a government, a public-private partnership that gives you land, then basically you have the platform that people can then go on to build businesses and to grow. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. One of the most successful investment promote, promotion agencies in the world actually is in Costa Rica. Uh, it's a government entity, but what do they do? They're promoting the hell out of the country and out of their special economic zones. And at the end of the day, I mean, it, that's what it is. It's about how do you get people to come because you have better conditions for them so they can invest here and we can create jobs to drive prosperity. So I think it's spot on. Mm -hmm. we, you become an investment promotion agency for the country. And what's really funny is in this case right now, the current government is fighting their investment promoter promotion agency. But it's not going to be a, a permanent thing. I think that there are a lot of, I, I really think that people in, in government right now in Honduras are, want the best for their country. We just have a different uh, how. I think the why is a, is a shared why. Maybe they don't know us. Maybe don't, they don't trust us. Maybe they don't trust us because the previous administration is seen as the one behind us. But at the end of the day, we all have the same why. We all want Hondurans to migrate within their own country for opportunities, not have to migrate to Mexico or the U.S. or Canada or Europe. I do think Prosper is a zero to one. And then, I, you know, I'm happy to see more density in this space. I, I'm happy to see more projects coming up. I'm, I'm happy to see more initiatives. On the one hand, we are a for-profit en endeavor. So, you know, it always like, ooh, the competition, you know, we got to get our act together, blah, blah, blah. But on the other hand, there's nothing better for the movement as a whole and for the end goal, which is prosperity for humanity, to have, than to have tons of projects. So at least I think we already achieved one of our objectives, which was that just make this, just show that it's possible. Yeah, that's so important because... You know, I always tell everyone, hey, we're 0.00 something percent market share in the market for governance, right? So no. it, it, we have so much more to gain from helping each other rather than seeing other projects as competition, right? It's so much space to do more network <laughs> states, more charter cities, oh more of God. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think um, Balaji's network states came out last year through in this book that I recommend everyone to read. Um, I think it's still a bit, and I debated this with Trey, it's a bit confusing, right? So most people that have read it, they're not aware that Prosper exists or that Charter City exists, right? So there is already the zero to one, there is already precedent in a couple of projects with diplomatic recognition and physical territory. The good thing is there is awareness now. So I can tell them now, hey, some of that already exists, but I think it's super valuable. I go now to conferences to East Denver. And sort of I'm asking when I give a talk, hey, who's heard of or read the network state, right? And tons of hands throw up. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. So I think this is really the year where this is where there's so much more talent coming into coming into the movement, which is great. I think that uh Balaji and the network state are doing a a fantastic job of just getting people to think about it, just getting people to wrap their head about there's other ways of governing ourselves than what's currently out there. And we need to innovate in that space. So I, I think that's a very positive development. I'm wondering how this changes dynamics also of governments, right? Because one of our criticisms that we talked about before is that governments or public agencies don't have an upside reward or incentive, right? So, you know, some of the things like common law, like Hong Kong, like Singapore, like sunset clauses, many of these templates and easy fixes we already know Right. But when you're inside a government, 
then, you know, you have to fight an uphill battle. It's extremely hard to win with a very low chance. And then you don't get any of the upside benefit. Now, what can now change with Crosspoint and increasing market for that is you don't have to fight this uphill battle. You can kind of already buy the model on an available market, kind of partner with a corporation such as yours and get it sort of ready-made, right? So that just massively lowers the barriers to adoption in your country, right? So it increases the number of government officials, public servants that are for whom it's possible to bring this into their countries, right? Yeah, I, I think it does actually that, which you just described very well. The other thing it does is it allows for, and maybe you were referring to this as well, but it allows for parts of the model to be adopted by the country. And I think that's what you refer to with the sunset clauses, et cetera. But you could see a model where, you know, we're driving more tax dollars into the, the government of Honduras. I, I, let me maybe explain for your audience, but the model is that Prospera, the Prospera Z, the public entity created by Prospera, uh, is tasked with collecting tax, taxes within the zone. And those taxes that are collected within the zone, 12% goes to the central government through an, a series of trusts to prevent corruption. And so we operate the zone with a 44, at 100%, 12% goes to the government, 40% goes into a reserve, and we operate the zone with 44% of taxes generated. Uh, what that means is that we can show how you can be super efficient in providing government services, which in a way is counter the in interest of those that are in a position of power where they can extract value for themselves in that position of power. But really the, the main incentive is competition, right? Most people will not do the right thing out of having strong, a strong system of values or principles. Most people will do the right thing because there's a huge loss if they do the wrong thing, right? And so this also plays out, you know, with government. And so you see uh, the cartelization of world governments, you know, you can't charge less than such and such amount of, of, of taxes in, in the world in an, as an aggregate. And you begin to think, well, yeah, of course. I mean, that makes sense. If you're, if you're in that position, you don't want competition because competition is so powerful, even at a small scale, competition is so powerful that it begins to drive behavioral change. So you can, you can begin to imagine how things like, look, why don't we switch from this progressive uh, income tax taxation to sort of a flat tax prosper. You can begin to see that. I mean, it's one thing to have that example in Singapore, in, in you know, in these other faraway places. It's another thing to, within your own country, have these systems that are more efficient, provide better services, uh, and allow for people to retain more of what they've produced, um, while at the same time providing, as I said, imp an improved services situation. I think that's one of the unexpected positive benefits of this is, is, is just how uh, reform can spill over. And, you know, it can also become a situation. It doesn't have to be just a negative incentive. There's also the positive incentive of a, of a group of legislators or the executive basically saying, um, wow, look at that. Look at that regulation. Look at that financial regulation. Why don't we just switch out our whole financial regulation and import this financial regulation wholesale so the whole country can benefit from it. Or, you know, you could, you could look at how, wow, look what these guys are doing in terms of medicine. You know, let's import the whole medical regulatory infrastructure they're building in, and, and, and bring it into the country because there's so much good value being created. So I, I think that can happen. And that would be a huge win for us because at the end of the day, I mean, there's so much wealth in the world and there's so much wealth to be created, you know, 
in some of the early slides we had to our investors, uh, Eric very powerfully showed that if the 75% of the rest of the world that they had the same governance level and quality as the top 25%, you could create a trillion more dollars worth of value in the world. You know, and that's, I mean, just think of that per year. You know, it's just massive amounts of, of, of wealth. So, uh, you know, if, if, if we are a conduit to expert better practices where people can go out and solve in their own self-interest the biggest problems in the world and just keep a bunch of, their, of, their, uh, of the upside for themselves while adding value to everybody else, that's a huge win for everybody. You know, that's a massive win for everybody. It's not like, you know, the, our incentives are, oh, let's create this walled garden where only we have these opportunities. No, I mean, that's not, our incentive is let's create the best, most powerful, most free, and most innovative society in the world. And then let's get everybody to come and copy what we have. And even the top 25% can, I think, at least 5 to 10x even. Oh, yeah. Okay. Right? And so economic growth is also the thing that you frequently underestimate. Even Adam Smith, who was like the first one who saw kind of the underlying dynamics of economic growth through the free market, sort of regulated by sort of repeat business and things like that. He thought he could, they, it could three to five X what was then the case, like an agricultural society in yeah. the late 18th century. And I think since then we've about 50 X or a hundred X. So it's quite and, amazing. You know, when you look at, yeah. And when you look at all the problems that we're also facing in developed countries, plus sort of the hundred trillion that you mentioned, you know, I think we can really supercharge humanity to something that we can't imagine right now. Even. Yeah. No, without a doubt. And, and, uh, I mean, just uh, think of what it would mean for these countries in Latin America and other parts of the world that are unstable, that are insecure, to have stability, security, and wealth. Uh, I mean, it just, it's just for, you know, just a, a family with their kids, you know. Now you have this opportunity, you know, you become an engineer, you can go work for this company or you can start your own company. And I mean, it's just the positive externalities are so big. I think it, it I think... I'm very lucky and I think the executive team is very lucky because we're all very passionate about this. And so to think of these scenarios is very inspiring, you know? You know, to think of all these opportunities and you see guys come in and they begin to do super well and they become, begin to grow and, and you see that it's not a, a thing that it's because they're Honduran or Guatemalan or Salvadorian. It's because the, the, the system doesn't, doesn't exist that can create these opportunities. Let's go back to Honduras and Roatan. So is there something like a vision how you want Prospera to look like? Like how many people would it have? What would kind of be its footprint? To be able to provide all the services at the quality we want to provide, I think the density, uh, has to, you know, it's going to really depend on the amount of economic activity we've created, but. Uh, I think around 5,000 people, uh, we began real liftoff. Before that, you know, you're still on the low slope part of the curve, and then you begin to accelerate after 5,000. I think in Roatan, I think I would like to see 40,000, uh, a, a community of about 40,000 people. I think that's a, a, a community that has all the right levels of services to be provided. Uh, 
things as simple as, uh, but as crucial as schooling, bunch of options in schooling, bunch of options in, in universities, uh, uh, bunch of options in systems of education that we don't even know exist yet, but probably pop up, um, financial services, even things such as restaurants and gyms, you know, at that level of, of a population and probably earlier, you begin to have a bunch of services that are really compelling to people around the world. So I think right now what we have is the early majority or the, or really the innovators coming in. Uh, I, I like to tell the story of Shackleton, right? Of Ernest Shackleton, when he went to uh, explore Antarctica and he, and he wrote that really famous uh, advertisement in the London Times that said, you know, inviting people to join his expedition. He said things like, long hours of darkness, you might not come back, you know, and all these things. And in a way, that's, a, that's sort of what we're doing too right now. You know, we want the builders. We want, we want people right now to come who think, damn, there can't be anything more fun in the world than come and build a new city. And I'm going to go there and I'm going to contribute to that vision because we, we, we can't do anything, nor have we set this up uh, to do anything. So I think that eventually, you know, when we're about maybe 10,000 people, I think we're, we'll be into the early majority. Um, and then the early majority, it's easier, you know, you, you know, your friends are there, they're doing great. They're having fun. You know, maybe I can go live there, you know, but they're there because, you know, they, they like the idea and these other guys are there too. So anyway, I think that, that once we hit 40,000, I mean, it's, it's at that point we are in the, you know, uh, sort of this, the middle of the bell curve and a lot of people want to come. And, and then we have, of course, the jurisdiction on the mainland. The jurisdiction on the mainland can be a lot larger. It's more of an industrial logistics-based jurisdiction with a port, manufacturing facilities, a lower cost base for people moving there simply because it's on the mainland. On the island, everything's more expensive, uh, the cheaper energy, cheaper water. And so I, I, my, my sense is that that community can grow easily to maybe a hundred thousand, uh, a hundred thousand people, maybe more. Um, I think eventually, uh, you know, we would like to see in different parts of the country, um, even more than that. I, I can't really say because it's going to depend on, on a number of things, but more than, than a hundred, more than 150,000, I think that would be great. It just allows for so much richness to those living there to help that your population. I love the metaphor of the Shackleton's journey. Just because a lot of people ask all the time, so how many people are living there right now? I think it's about 1,100 people that you mentioned are directly and indirectly employed by Prospera. Um, I think of which are right now like 50 to 100 people living there physically within Prospera and um, sort of in the outskirts. That will change with Duna and with the construction projects yeah. um, that you already mentioned. So I think we might get to a couple of hundreds of people, maybe even a thousand towards the end of this year. And it's also part of the reason why I do the conferences. That's why yeah. I want to get my future neighbors. I think there's a 130 registered businesses in Prospero, right? Yeah. And more and a lot more people now uh, that have, uh, uh, you know, residencies of, different, of a different type. Initially, initially, we just had two types of residents and we really didn't have uh, visitor passes. Now we have these types of visitor passes. So there's a lot more through, uh, throughput, if you want, of people now than we, uh, mm. than we originally thought at this stage, because before, you know, we were more concerned with people understanding that they were coming into a new regulatory environment, a new set of laws was going to apply to them within the space. 
we wanted to make sure that they understood that. But, you know, there's practicalities, you know, you, you have a hypothesis and very, very quickly you figure it out if that hypothesis works or not. So we have a lot of people coming through right now, a lot of people that are curious. I think you're absolutely right. Um, a bunch of the, before we couldn't have people living in the zone because we had nowhere for people to live in the zone, you know, it was a green field. So now with Duna and with some other, some other of the residential projects that are coming online, yeah, you're, you're really going to craft the community of people that are going to be living there, you know? Uh, and I, I got to tell you, one of the most exciting things for me is the collisions, the collisions of people coming in and out and, you know, sort of who's this guy and what's he here for and what, what interests him and hear their story. And, uh, I think that at the end of the day, you know, there's a lot of moving parts to this, you know, the regulatory environment and building, et cetera, but it's about who moves there. So who are the people, you know, who are the people that are going to go there and what are they trying to do and what are they trying to solve? How do they want to contribute to, to, to moving the world forward? I'm curious. So what does your day look like right now as a city developer? What are kind of the key things that are on your plate right now that you're working on? You know, there's a, there's the operational side of things, which I can go into. And uh, there's the, if you want, st stabilization area of it, aspect of it that has more to do with, with the government itself. Prospera, and I think any other project, this is one of the things that one of these days I'd like to have a beer with Elijah and talk about. But, um, you know, these types of projects live in the operational world, but also live in, the, in, in a world of politics. At the end of the day, the zone within its jurisdiction, within its area of influence, exerts power to uphold its rules. Um, and so that comes into direct competition with the idea of a government, of a central government, of a municipal government, exerting its own rules upon a population within its territory. So there's a, there's a very, there, there, there's, a, there's a tension there that I think will always exist, just like it exists between states in the U.S., between the central government and the states, between the states and different uh, municipalities uh, within a state. There's always that tension. Who has jurisdiction, right? You know, the old, the old movie where the local cops, they're trying to solve a murder and the FBI moves in, kicks them out. That type of tension exists. And so we have to deal with that. Uh, in, in the particular instance that we're in Honduras right now, there is a... a, a there is a tension with the current government because the project was not promoted by them. It was promoted by their arch enemies, the other party. And, you know, our position is, look, we're a tool for the country to enrich your people. We're not political. We don't care about the other party. We don't care about this party. We just want to do a project. But everything that, that in politics, everything's tinted by, by politics. So, so that's part of the issue. And we need to deal with that. And I think it's been one of the, things that I was most blinded to at a personal level, I, I, I thought that, you know, we would more or less be left alone uh, because we, we would be generating all this value for the country. And, you know, that's great. And maybe what would happen is they would want to take more credit for it. So we're having to deal with that a lot. And, and, that, and that means you, you end up talking to a lot of elites, both in the business sector and in the, in, the, in the public sector. You end up, you know, talking to businessmen from around the world that are interested in the country and you have to give the angle of politics, not just the angle, the operational angle. So there's a lot of, of, of that, a lot of that going on. I think distractingly so, unfortunately. So you're, you're distracted from where you add most value, which is on the operational side. 
And then on the operational side, it really looks like almost any other development. You have to do business development. You have to go get your clients. You have to enroll them. You have to sell them on what you're doing. You have to sell them on to the idea that this is really long-term. You know, we are here for, we have a legal contract that allows us legal stability for 50 years. So we can provide stability in a, in a manner that, that, you know, that no other country really does today within our zone. And Honduras can offer that to the world. It's a great selling point. Uh, but then it means, you know, you have, Okay, where are we? Where's the master plan? Let's look at the master plan. Let's create the master plan. What type of density do we want? Where does where do things go? Okay, do we do we throw a bunch of buildings right next to the beach, you know, and 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 basically create density from the beach to the back or from the back to the front? And you know, we have to put an infrastructure. And you begin the, the operational side of it becomes very much as if you're doing a massive condominium, uh, just a really really big uh, condominium. Uh, and then you have to bring in tenants to the condominium. You have to explain to them how the system works. But that's really fun. I find it to be really fun because when people see what we're doing, understand what we're doing, and you, you tell you tell a developer, look, within 24 hours, you'll be able to start building. They're like, what? What? 24 hours? Takes me six months to a year to get a permit. Are you crazy? No, you're crazy to be you know, developing on that other property. Here, you can get, you can get going like that. Uh, so, so that... That um, uh, takes a lot. I think I think we do uh, fundraising. You know, a project like this consumes a lot of capital, especially because it's so heavy on on the real estate uh, side of things. But the promise is also great, right? You take real estate that's third world rural and you convert it into first world urban. Just think of the multipliers. The multipliers between Roatan and and I think uh, Dubai were like 500, uh, 500 times the value. Of the land, so the and to, and to Hong Kong there were about two thousand. So the multipliers in, in terms of the land, yes, you invest a bunch up, up front because you have to put in the infrastructure, and, and that's the reason we bought the, the Pristine Bay Resort because there was already a lot of infrastructure there. But then what you do to the land value just goes through the roof. So that's what we're really more involved in. You know, we do we have we have three legs to our business model: the real estate leg, uh, the governance as a service leg which provides government services uh, for profit um, and the investment side of things, the sort of the venture side where we contribute capital into companies that want to set up within the zone. Yeah. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a bit more about how it works in Prospera with owning and buying and selling land and real estate. And I'm asking the question in a, so I have never in my life bought land, right? So I'm coming at it from a bit of a naive view and, yeah. and that kind of makes, that's kind of, it's almost like how it is to incorporate a company. Like when you talk about it in theory and there's something you don't get until you do it in practice, until you right. go through all the paperwork. So I feel still there's a bit of a gap in my understanding or knowledge, how it is when it comes to buying and selling and holding land. So I'm wondering, how does that work in Prosper? Because some people ask me sometimes, hey, can I just buy land in Prosper? How does that look like? What's kind of the investment returns or whatever? Is there something like a leasing period? I'm always like, I don't know. So be glad if you could answer that question to our listeners. Yeah, yeah. Right now, Honduras uh, Prosper Inc., which is the, the holding company, the owner of the majority of, of the land to one of its subsidiaries, all the land we incorporated 
you, you basically, the process is you take a property that's in the public land registry and you basically make an annotation in the registry. In the Prostra land registry or in the Honduras? No, in the, in the Honduran land, land registry. <laughs> so say, say, you, say you're owner of a property in Rotan and you want to, you want to, you want that property to be part of a, a Prospera or a Vazetic. What you do is you, you go with your notary to the Honduran land registry and you make a notation saying that from now on this property, you know, it's got all, all the information of the property where it's located, you know, the size, et cetera, et cetera, will be managed by a new registry, which is the Zeta registry. And that, that Zeta registry of Prosper is the one managed by us. So now that property is part of the territory of Prosper, right? So that's how So that's anyone how can do that. Also on the Honduran mainland, if I'm like a small business owner in Tegucigalpa, for example. You, th there are some, uh, limiting factors. For example, you, you can't, you, you, if you have a density of more than 35 people per square kilometer, you need to have a plebiscite. So that's one, one limitation. The other limitation is that, well, you, you would need, if you want to incorporate into Prospera, you need to talk with us you, because we're not going to take on a property without the owner's understanding exactly what it means to be part of the system, et cetera. And so that's a very important limitation because it, it provides safety for people. How does it provide safety? Well, to, to do anything in Prospera, the first step is you have to become a, a resident, what we call a knee resident. So basically a knee resident is somebody who has gone through a certain level of KYC, who's a known person to the jurisdiction. Uh, and we do that so that we keep bad actors out. You know, we don't want any illegal funds, terrorism funds, drug funds, uh, politics politician money flowing through Prosper. We want to, we want to be a, a, an entity that's very, very squeaky clean. So the first thing we do is we, you know, we clear you and you give your authorization for us to, by applying, you, you provide us authorization to tell us who you are. And once you've gone through, through that process, then you can incorporate, you can buy, you can sell, you can create companies, you can transact, you can do, or have a banking uh, account within the zone. Um, but that's, that's the first step and it's a super important step. And now to own land, um, to own land, you could, you could do a couple of things. You can go and look at what's available for sale within the jurisdiction currently. I, I do not believe that there's a lot because we hold most of it right now. And we, uh, our vision more than, than selling off parcels is to develop those parcels through third parties, not through ourselves, but through third parties. But you, there will be a there, there will be a time where you can buy buy land because enough of it will be incorporated and people, you know, you know how things start. They start concentrated initially and then they 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 disperse just like just like shares in a company over generations. So you can buy land uh, with with your uh, e red with your e residency. You can sell land. You can hold land. But more than land, you can buy property. So you can buy an apartment. Wait, so you, you can you can. Buy land that's not part of the zone yet, or you can buy land that is already part of the zone. You can buy land. If you buy land that's not part of the zone, that would be a transaction within regular, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. regular. That's hundreds. what you described. Right. Um, but and when you're a resident, you can also buy land that's within the zone. Right. The thing is right now, there's not a lot of it for sale because most of it is owned mm -hmm, by mm -hmm. Prospera and we are seeking to get that land identified and developed. Uh, as a matter of fact, um, well, one of the things that we... We have very few taxes, but one of the taxes we do have is a land value tax, sort of a Georgian tax. Um, and 
the land value tax does not tax the buildings on top of the land. It just taxes the land. Now, what that does is it discourages um, it discourages speculation on land in favor of density. So, because you're not going to hold a property that you're continuously having to sustain through your own cash flow. What you want to get that property, you want to get that property developed and you want to make it cash generating as quickly as possible. So that land value tax that you're paying is offset by the revenue you're generating to the property. Uh, so, you know, people buying and holding land, it can happen, of course. Well, we are holders right now of land and and it will happen in the future. I, I do foresee situations where people will absolutely begin transacting in land, just like they do in any other city in the world. Uh, but the, the system is created in such a, a manner that the incentive for you is to buy the land and try to develop it as quickly as possible through the, the, the land value tax. And then for developing the land, you're basically leasing it to third parties or how does that work? No, if, if it's prosper land, if it's prosper land, there's a couple of business models we can, we can look at. We, you know, we can sell the land outright. We can say, okay, Nick, you're going to develop. Here's a, you know, an acre. Go ahead and build on this acre, and, and you you buy it from us, and you go ahead and you build it. Uh, we can contribute the land to the uh, uh, equity of the development itself, which is what we did with Duna. Duna, which is the first tower within the zone, it's a 14-story tower, about 10,000 square meters, 82 uh, residential units, a commercial space, and a res and an office space. What we did with them is we 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 valued the land and we contributed the land to the cap table of the development company, the development entity. And then we're shareholders there. Uh, and we also contributed some capital. So we're shareholders in that, in that entity, but the developer is a third party. It's not Prosper developing. Um, so that's the second model. The third model is we can actually long-term lease the land. We could say, hey, it, this is especially attractive for industry players who don't want to expend a lot of capital on land, which is expensive. They say, look, I'll lease the land for 20 years. I'll build some warehouses. And I'll rent the warehouse. Uh, so those are the, those are really the three models, and, and there are variations, but those are in essence the three models of what we what we can do. Yeah, and and if you have a third party owner of land within the zone, they can do the same thing. In that case, once you're within the zone, you operate like you would in any other city. Just the variances are the regulations and the taxation. Yeah, it's fascinating, and I didn't even know um, that you had a Georgian land tax in a bit. Talk a bit more about that and the thinking that led you to the point where we did that. Yes, I, I'm definitely not an expert in, in in Georgian philosophy. So, but I but I do believe that what we have our land value tax. Um, you know, you have really two models. You can tax the property, in which case you're you're discouraging density because you're taxing the bigger and more expensive the property is, the more expensive the more tax you're going to pay. And what that does is that, you know, there, there, there's an economic balance between how big the building should be versus the taxes you're going to pay given your market. So it, it discourages density, but we want density. We, we, we believe that density, the most environmentally friendly cities are the denser cities because the footprint that they have concentrates all human activity within that footprint. And you're not affecting a broader, uh, you know, space or area. So our philosophy on taxes is basically the following. What, how do we create taxes that are easy to, easy to collect? Because you don't want to tax up for every dollar you spend 90 cents collecting because that leaves you nothing to impact. Uh, so you want a tax that's easy to collect, that makes, that, that doesn't 
favor one industry over another, you know, so that there's no economic winners and losers based on the, on the incentive. And you want to have as few of them as possible. So we have three. One, one is a land value tax. Uh, and the land value tax, typically you have what I was describing earlier, a tax that, ta that, that taxes the whole building and the land. So the incentive there, you know, is terrible because what you end up doing is you try to uh, create a scenario where the land doesn't accrue in value. And you do that to a bunch of tricks. Uh, and and it's it's really bad because it creates it creates bad incentives. So having a land value tax aligns all of the incentives of the of the landowner, aligns the incentives of the developer because they can develop as high as they want and they know they're not going to be killed by the tax. What what will happen is the land will go up in in value, but you'll be distributing that tax in, into more people as the more people live uh, or 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 you know um, work in that building. So that's the idea with with the land tax. We think it's a it's a great, easy to collect tax, um, and and we have a a simple system of 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 paying paying that tax and the and the other taxes as well. Fantastic! I is it's the first jurisdiction in the world that does these land taxes, or are there others that do it similar that you were modeled? I, I think that there are other. I, I believe there are other uh, parts of the world that already apply just the land value tax. Now, if you ask me which ones, I've completely forgotten. Uh, but I believe that that there are uh, a few others, not many, though. Most see that the incentive for governments is to go tax the property because there's more money there up front. But it, but, but it has the, the perverse incentive of this, this incentivizing debt shape. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, this is kind of brings me to this question. Um, oh, it's kind of a bit meta, like what's kind of, your experience and kind of the trade-off between using best practices that are kind of known, sort of picking and choosing from what already exists versus kind of genuinely creating something new. Sort of where do you fall on that line? Where do you think Prosper is just copying what works best from others? And where is Prosper doing something genuinely new, if you will, or a combination of those? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I can think of a couple of places where I think we're super innovative, but I, I do think that we, most of the jurisdiction is based on best practices. Probably one of the best best practices of the world is just basic common law. It, it created the most prosperous nation in the world. There's a compilation of best practices of common law uh, that's called the ULEX. I think you spoke about with Tom Bell about that at some point. That's actually, there's, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a demonstration, a physical demonstration of a system that works. It's that system. Uh, but there's things that can be, you know, improved or things that can be innovated upon. So first of all, most of the money in the world for investment is held in common law countries. So right there, if you align yourself from a regulatory perspective with that, with that country, it's like speaking English. You know, if you, if you have a company that speaks, let's, let's say, uh, Czech, just a you know, a, a language that's not spoke by many people. You you need a translator because most people don't understand Czech. You need a translator. Same as with the legal system. If you have if you have common law and you have civil law in Latin America, that you need a translator. Those translators typically are lawyers. What we've done here is we have a system that a lawyer in the states understands without a translator in in Latin America. So right there, you you strip out a huge layer of of potential uh, disruption, you know, where, where people really don't understand why this worked that way, what it's worked that way. Then common law, basic common law, not prescriptive common law. In other words, not, not, not a lot of the stuff that's been built on top of common law that, you know, you can argue whether it's good or bad. 
but just the basic stuff. And then what we did also is we, we, you know, there were one of the big things that we've always been concerned about is there are negative externalities to human activity. How do you make people that are generating those negative externalities take on the cost of those negative externalities? In other words, it's not good if you concentrate the benefits and you distribute the costs to, you know, to, to your population. So we, we have these, uh, these set of what's called the regulated industries. Regulated industries would be anything that can have a negative externality. So construction, the banking sector is a huge one and can be seen with the, uh, uh, with the current uh, uh, issues that are happening in the banking sector. Medical is also, and a bunch of industries that are, you know, that are, that are, that are selected industries. And we said, look, a bunch of countries already have a bunch of different ways of dealing with this. So what we should do is rather than create our own new system and have people adopt a new system and create a barrier, what we're going to do is we're going to allow people to choose a regulatory environment of any of the top 30 OECD countries plus Honduras. You're German. So if your, your expertise is in, I don't know, German medicine, you can come here and you can be regulated under a system you already know and understand. So in essence, what you create is a one-stop shop for all these industries for the best of the best to come and say, and come here and say, wow, I already know how this works. I don't have to create, I don't have to think about that aspect of it, which is X operational. You know, I, I, I already got it. But then we did, I think something that's, that was even cooler, uh, which is uh, a system of, let me call it self-adjusting regulation. Because the problem with regulation typically is you, 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 when you, when you lay down regulation, 30 years into the future, still there. 50 years into the future, it's still there. 500 years into the future, I mean, I'm exaggerating, but you know, you get, you get the point. It's still there, right? And things have changed massively, 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 but the regulation is still there because there's no system to adjust it. So, you know, one great system is sunset, sunset clauses. Sunset clauses are great because you can, you can actually do an experiment. You can say, okay, look, it's, this sounds like a really good idea, but we're going to limit it to say 10 years or five years. After eight years, within those two years, they can be renewed, right? And then if you want it to be renewed because it was really good, you let it go forward. If not, you kill it. And then you're, you're relieved because the problem with regulation, as you know, is it, it creates people to take advantage of the loopholes in the regulation to bring, you know, to bring benefits to themselves that are not necessary. So we, you want to avoid that. So, so the way this works is if you're a company and I'm sorry I've gone on for so long, but just, just to wrap up this point, you, you can also propose your own regulatory environment. So say you like German medical law. You say, okay, you know what? I'm going to take 20 things from German medical law, and, but these other 10, I'm going to solve in a different way. And then you propose a new regulatory environment, and that regulatory environment then becomes the law of the land. And then if it's good enough, other players in the field can adopt that as well. So it's not specific to you. You don't get, a, you don't get uh, an individual benefit. It's a benefit that you get, but then it's played out to everybody else. But then somebody else can say, you know what? That's really interesting. But you know what? Out of those 20 things that they kept, I think I want to change two, two and do some other things. So the system begins to, to regulate to a best case scenario of, um, of, where, of optimal regulation. What you just said, Gabriel, that was one of the things that I mentioned in the beginning, right? There's a couple of ideas that are very commonsensical. Like, it's very hard to disagree with it. One is sunset clauses, 
right? So if you have a new regulation, the future is uncertain, you know, just like you do clinical trials, you want to measure the impact of a new drug, right? So you want to put it out in the test field and then see after 10 or 20 years, what impact did it have and should we continue exactly. it or not? It's like yep. super commonsensical. And the other one is reciprocity. It's especially interesting in medical, right? So why doesn't the FDA or the medical regulator just say, oh, we accept what the regulators from Germany or from Japan say, right? That's just the easiest fix that would save like hundreds of millions, generate potentially billions in economic value, right? Yes. So these are so commonsensical. You could convince anyone of any political leaning of these kinds of ideas, but we're not yet doing it because there's no incentive and no process to fix the existing systems. I think the incentive is on the other side of it. Because once you create a regulation, you created a battery barrier to entry to competitors. And so the entrenched players don't want, you know, because to them, that, that allows them to continue to control this, the system. By the way, I think on the sunset clause, there is an issue that just people in the regulatory bodies just don't think about sunset clauses very much. You know, I don't think it's something that's top of mind, but I may be wrong on that. That's just my speculation. Yeah, I mean, it's true. It goes back to the point I said earlier about the practical possibility. It just doesn't like pay off to think about these things. You don't have an incentive other than if you want like a professor into a PhD. Exactly. And that also exactly. Yeah, exactly. So exactly. as the regulator, you don't get any of the upside of sort of developing a different way to regulate that creates new business value. Right. So the yeah. only your upside is you can create sort of a new department in, you know, the FDA, your organization that's not taking care or has control or oversight of this new thing. Right. So very smart, very aware people. That's the incentive to set up these new bureaus that have kind of control over whatever is new, right? So that's just any human. Each one of us would, would do it this way to advance in our careers, right? Through and again, to bring this point home, so that this regulatory flexibility model and prosper, you can either pick and choose from existing regulations. You can even propose your own new regulation, or you can live with common law legal liability. And then you have in a competitive insurance market and arbitration market, right? So it's each new com each company, you that's, need to pick an that's insurer. Innovation. Let, let me just tell you a little bit about that because I think it's, it's very, very interesting. So you have this regulatory body, uh, but you have insurance. The idea is that in, in typically regulation is, is a set of incentives to try to minimize risk or that's, that's sort of the idea uh, uh, or, or, or norm behavior. The insurance aspect of it, I think, is another great innovation because at the end of the day, who, which entities in the world are best positioned to evaluate your risk? It's insurance companies. That's their day-to-day. -day. Every day, day in and out, they're evaluating risk. So, hell, they're perfectly positioned to evaluate the risk of any industry. So if, they, if you get the insurance, that means that the insurance company looked at the risk and felt comfortable enough to give you uh, coverage. Yeah, so imagine you're using a regulation for, I don't know, your bank or your medical practice that everyone else in the jurisdiction is already using, or that's been used for like 50 years in Norway or whatever. The insurance company is going to say, yep, commonsensical, I give you low premiums. I don't have to do any risk assessment. I have like decades of precedent. And then, whereas if you're proposing something new, like a kind of regulation that hasn't been like tried and tested before, as the insurance, you're going to say, well, this is a higher level of uncertainty. I need to do some of my own risk assessment. I need to bring in exactly. international experts that look at this and tell me 
what um, their opinion is of that, right? So this is exactly. going to give you or cost you a higher premium, right? Exactly. So, but if you're an innovator, you and, and you get large benefit from changing regulations. This kind of organically allows you to. It's almost like what I, the best thing I can com- try to compare it with is in software, right? So the previous model is you kind of have one jurisdiction and one so, um, programming language, right? And in Prosper, you're kind of now saying, well, you can use multiple different programming languages in the same territory that can kind of interoperate it's like they do in the software yes, world. Yes, exactly. And I think also it, it, it becomes a feedback mechanism to the, to the company setting up to actually, to actually evaluate the risk of what you're doing. I mean, if a company doesn't want to insure you, well, hell, that's a big red flag. But if it's a government regulation that doesn't allow you to move forward, you don't have the market validation of, of whether it's uh, good or bad. You know, you're missing yeah. it. Yeah, that's so important. It, again, excites me so much about Prospera. Um, before we end, can you talk a bit about the, the kinds of companies that have already set up shop in Prospera that are making use of this kind of flexible um, regulatory environment? Yeah, yeah, happy to do so. I think there are companies that are naturally more, will extract more value from the zone than others. Um, So I think more highly regulated uh, industries in the world that have large barriers for their members, such as in the medical industry, you know, even in the US, if you're a doctor in New York, you can't practice in Florida, you know, you can't practice in Texas. I mean, it makes no sense to me. I mean, I, I would think that if you're a good doctor in New York, you can practice anywhere. Uh, but that's the the law of the land. So, so those industries that are very, very heavily regulated have a big, big advantage in Prospera. We are seeing a lot of industry in the gene therapy sector uh, and other sectors that require uh, stage one uh, clinical trials because they, it can be done within the zone at a much lower cost, much more swiftly. And that just helps you get to market quicker. One of the first companies that came down, you already had on your show, which is MiniCircle. And I remember the day I was sitting in the beta building, we'd launched it just a few, uh, probably less than a month ago. And then in come these two guys, you know, they're kind of strolling around. And I just, and I'm thinking, wow, who are these guys, you know? And it, it turned out it was Mac, who I talked to back in 2017 or 2018 who has this amazing uh, genetic therapy platform, but he, he, he couldn't get it launched anywhere because the regulatory environment wasn't even set up to, to take on something uh, like of the likes of what he was creating. And, and more and more people are beginning to see that. Uh, we've had conversations with a number of U.S. companies that are startups in the, in the, in the medical space that, that want to set up. We're now looking at a company that wants to set up a medical, a medical school, but driven by innovation. Uh, these are all things that I think are going to come online within the next year or so, even though, you know, many circles are already operating. Uh, so I think the medical industry just stands to be, uh, stands to, to have an enormous advantage. Uh, and there are a bunch of different verticals within, within the, the, the med sector that can take advantage of that. Yeah. So there's a fund, have you heard of, there's a fund, it's called Infinita. You may have heard of it. Quite there's a good a fund. fund. <laughs> there's a fund. <laughs> so that's another type of industry that we've attracted. Yep. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, just because I see there's so much alpha there, right? So mini circle, they can get like 10, 20 times more early stage pipeline. 
you know, to exactly. try new drugs and therapeutics just by the co- reducing the costs so much of doing early stage clinical trials. And the next opportunity is to build that medical tourism hub around that. That's what we're going to talk about in the next healthcare conference. We had at the last conference a study by Deloitte that was looking into the opportunity of medical tourism in Rota. And it's just, it, this is a strategic location, very easy to get to from the United States. So much uh, attraction now to the longevity space right now all over the world, right? There's tons of funding coming into it. So that's a big opportunity. I think the other sector that has a huge upside is uh, uh, the financial sector. Even traditional finance, not just fintechs or, or crypto, but even just the traditional finance because banking in this, in this part of the world for big companies, billion dollar companies in this part of the world is very restricted. Your ability to, to get funding for even for large companies, forget small companies or startups, you're screwed. If you don't have, if you don't have a guarantee, you'll never get the money. So you'll, you'll never be able to found a startup because who's going to give you money if you have no guarantees, but maybe that's what drives you. That's what gives you the drive. You know, the fact that you don't have anything. Um, so in the financial sector, I think we have a huge, huge, huge opportunity, basically because of the same things we've talked about, reciprocity, the ability to create your own regulatory framework, the insurance process. We have a, a Bitcoin center, you know, it's an education center, but I think Bitcoin is, is and, and crypto in general, but Bitcoin in particular uh, is really taking off within, within the jurisdiction. We're super friendly to, to crypto companies. You know, it's basically legal tender within the zone. I mean, when you're in like the United States right now and you follow the whole crypto and banking debate, it's just so frustrating, right? Because, you know, one argument is, oh, it's the fault of crypto and of tech. And the other one is, no, it's the fault of banking regulations and the Federal Reserve. But then you're in the situation where, you know, the regulators, the Federal Reserve and the politicians can say, well, screw you. <laughs> I'm sitting on the longer end. I can just tell you I'm right. And you have to do whatever I want to. Exactly. And that's just yeah, and frustrating. But, but there's because... a whole law of unexpected consequences, right? And so you, you begin to clamp down on some activity that you want, don't want to see happening. And before you know it, uh, you, you've totally killed it. it. I mean, that innovation is now impossible to get off the ground and you've destroyed something at the opportunity of being something great even though there are people that are willing to take the risk. I mean, if you think about it, had it not been for that, there would have been no Wright brothers. There would be no flight. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, hey, um, um, we can now create this testing field where you have an unbiased view of innovation, right? So you're not saying you have to follow this template that everyone's using before, and you have to follow this sort of guidelines that we come up with there's more of a flexibility to co-create these guidelines, right? Sort of with other guardrails. Another great example of that is also Seshat Bank. Yep. Right. I had Son on my episode one where he created his own banking regulation together with Prospera, right? Yeah. That was, that was then approved and sort of as an alternative to the lender of last resort model, right? That's underpinning um, the Federal Reserve System and central banking. Of course. The other ones are less talked about, but development is also big. We have the Duna Towers going up. We have a project called Pristine Heights going up. That's going to be amazing. And we have Asaha Hadid, a residential complex called Bayabu also going up. Those are also, in, what, what, what we really need right now is to drive density, to drive economic activity. We have a, a company that's set up, uh, it's called Circular Factory. Uh, it's a great work, woodworking shop. 
that uses robots uh, to create really funky shapes for buildings. And that's super good for the environment because it uses a lot less wood. Uh, so there's the waste is minimized. It creates amazing shapes that would otherwise take a long time to create, creates them very fast. So if, you know, if I was to do a pitch, I would say, go and look to the companies, go and look at your regulatory costs, which are distributed all over your PL. They're all over your PL. You can't really, you don't have a line that says government costs, though you should, you know, you should have a line in your PL that said government costs. Go look for those things and then compare what it would cost to set up within a jurisdiction. Uh, such as Prospero. And what you'll see is that the cost is enormous. And sometimes it's not even in money. Sometimes it's in time. Sometimes it's your in, your ability to uh, to turn employees that aren't working out. So, so just the, the all of these costs are hidden and we don't sometimes don't even know because we're so caught up in the operations of what we're doing. But can you talk a bit about the circular factory and also the Duna Towers, because those are in manufacturing and development. Yep. What are sort of the regulatory advantages that make it so much better for them to go to Prospera rather than anywhere else? Right. So as we were saying earlier, you know, there, there's, um, we have these, these, these businesses that potentially can have uh, significant negative externalities. So you, you can envision, uh, you know, a medical industry that's, uh, just being irresponsible with the therapies or you can envision, you know, uh, a construction site with no security for its workers and all these things that, that create rec uh, negative externalities. So we, what we tried to do, and I think we've been very successful. I mean, really beyond my, my, my expectations, uh, it's a great system that both prioritizes, uh, whoever is generating the negative externalities to have the cost of those externalities. Uh, and that means primarily the, the costs of making sure that they don't happen, right? Because there's, there's a significant downside in them happening for the, for the legal entity, for the company. Um, but also allowing for a system that, uh, takes out the massive pain that is, uh, getting anything done in today's world with all the permitting and all the hoops you have to jump through. And some of them that are necessary, others that are just plain ridiculous. How do we go about doing that? And so. You know, just to talk about construction, which is such an important part of any economy, and it will be so as well in Prospera, you know, construction typically, uh, I went to a meeting the other day with some guys that are in the, in the development business and, and where they live, you know, the shortest permitting to get a building off the ground once you have everything ready is six months and typically a year to a year and a half. Now you can imagine that to... Go to your investors and say, look, I want you to invest in this development and I'm going to get the permanent six years to a month, six months to a year, sorry, six years to a, to a, six months to a year. And from that point onwards, you know, I expect a 20 to 25% IRR, right? So an investor has to be ready to have his funds call in some time in the future, or if he's had his funds called, they're just sitting there doing nothing, right? So the inefficiencies from a financial perspective are huge. Plus the, uh, the, just the perspective of what if prices go up, you know, we just went through a big inflation cycle where construction prices went through the roof. So if you say you had a, a model, that model, you know, called for a $10 million investment into a building and you waited a year and a half and COVID hit 
or inflation hit, suddenly you're looking at maybe a $14 million project. You're like, damn, you know, how am I, I, I'm not prepared. I have to go back and I have to retool everything and maybe the whole economics change. So for, for the construction, for the construction and development industries, uh, innovations like what we have, where you can actually begin working on, you know, begin building 24 hours after you, you presented all your documentation is, 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 is staggering, uh, in, in, in the impact that has on a development company. Uh, Duna, basically when, when the designs were ready and, you know, we looked at all the changes that we wanted to make and et cetera, the developer got started 24 hours late, 24 hours later after he had secured a financing. And off he was. So the whole project's going to take a month and a year to get done. And it's a 10,000 square meter building. So it's a, it's not an insignificant building. It's the largest one in Roatan. Uh, and, and you see that happening over and over again. You know, our first building, the beta building, you know, the permit, I, I was the developer in that case because it was a prosper building. You know, we got all of our, all of the requirements, uh, of, the choice of regulation we had made to develop the building. And 24 hours later, we were off to the races, you know, and that the, the construction company wanted to work more hours. He could work more hours. He had to pay the compensation that was necessary for that. He wanted to work on Saturdays. He could work on Saturdays because what you have is choice, right? So you're not, you're not pitting one group against another. You, you, you give them choice and people want to do it. They can do it. If they don't want to do it, they don't have to do it. And so you can get, buildings going and finished super, super fast. Same thing with Circular Factory. You know, what we were just referring to is a, a woodworking shop that's run by robots primarily. Um, and so that building's going up super, super fast. Once we decided where we wanted to go, boom, off to the races. Same thing is going to happen with Pristine Heights and the same thing's going to happen with Bayabu. And what we're proving is that this is not a one-off. You know, this is not something that Oh, okay. I get it. This may be, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, this is, this is the norm. The norm is 24 hours and you're off to the races. How cool is that? How valuable is that? How, how powerful is it uh, that you can do that while having strong consequences if you have negative externalities, because the consequences, I mean, the penalties for generating costs to third parties are very, very Hard, very, very strict. You know, it's not like, oh, this is a no regulation zone. No, 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 no. We have few regulations, but they're strongly enforced. So all the right incentives are in place. Uh, and I think that's very, very cool. Now, with Circular Factory, uh, you know, what we're doing is because construction has been construction, like many other industries, there's a lot of stifling of innovation there too, because of the way the regulatory environment you know, grew uh, and has evolved over time and, and the materials that were used and the techniques, et cetera, et cetera. So innovation in construction uh, is, is sort of, you know, not very fast. It could be a lot faster, let's put it that way. I think the beauty of Circular Factory is just going to prove that you can, you can innovate in the construction field in a way that uh, people, you know, don't, don't expect or, or, or that's going to add so much value. So I think that the, so in construction, we were hoping more people will come because circular factory is interesting. You know, it's just we're working shop, robots, cut the pieces, you, what we talked about before, but that is an additional layer too, which is the, the sort of the, the shop, right? The, 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 the store, not shop, the store. So you go online, you select the unit you want to buy, 
in the development you want to buy it. And then you, after you put in all the amenities, et cetera, you know, so, sort of like you're shopping on Amazon, you know, and then once you're done, you click proceed to checkout, boom, you check out. And then, you know, the factory starts creating your, your home and then it's moved to the construction site and boom, up it goes. So all these, all the, all these are things are super cool. Yeah. So you mentioned something very important. Not sure how to clear that was to listeners, but you know, you regulate not before it happens kind of to prevent bad things from happening, but you're regulating consequences, Yep. right? You're not regulating the process to get there. I think that's a super important principle for any kind of regulations, right? Because, you know, you can regulate a car accidents out of existence. If you regulate down to, you can drive one mile per hour, right? But then you're also destroying a lot of good things that would happen in the process, right? So right. just having this kind of, uh, we want to prevent bad things from happening. That's what the regulation is. So it's not a very economic way to do it. And the other thing also with construction is, so Eric Pizzicalis, the CEO of the Apollo Group, said, so you can save massively on costs for materials. Yes. Right, because of the tax environment. And that can also significantly increase even with the sub port in the future, potentially, right? Yes. Um, then he's saving money on permitting, right? So he would pay several hundred thousand otherwise, right? In Prosper, he got it for, think, for 2,000. So it's just a massive difference back there. And to extrapolate on top of that for the future of construction in Prosper or anywhere else where you adapt the regulatory environment. So this is an hypothesis, but I was just um, thinking about this the other time in another podcast. Why don't we have more low-cost, small, modular housing in places like California where we have a housing crisis? Yep. The simple reason is the fixed costs for regulatory, right? So they're so high that it doesn't make sense to build small, yep. right? That's why you don't have a lot of small housing that's kind of very low cost and because the fixed costs for regulatory are so high, Yep. right? On top of that, so in many places, especially San Francisco, it's very hard to build high, right? Simply because um, there's tons of local politics that prevents that it doesn't want that. In Prosper, that can be solvable with air rights, right? So where we can sort of buy and sell rights to basically property that goes um, up in the air. So if yes. you want to protect a certain side and viewpoint, then, you know, you can buy the air rights so that you can even form a DAO that kind of protects the site or whatever. So you can more decentrally manage that. But yeah, put these two together, so you can do with more smaller, more modular, more lower cost and, and higher. Right? Yeah. <laughs> that can. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, one of the things we talked about earlier is the land value tax and how it promotes density. Um, so th that's, that's a big, a big, big, big incentive in favor of, of, of density. And, and that affects both mostly mid-level to high-level housing, but it can also affect, you know, low-level housing. I, I think that low level, low, lower cost housing is, is also a function of being able to fulfill existing demand because the demand exists. It exists on Roatan. It exists, you know, in a lot of places. But as you say, if you, if you, as you start uh, looking into that project, what happens is you see it's un uneconomical, then the, the amount of funding you're going to find for it is, 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 you know, just funding that uh, maybe is um, uh, is 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 well. It's not funding that's that's looking for a return. It's funding that's looking just to be deployed because it's some sort of uh, I don't know what the right word is. I think it's charity, but it's some sort of you know uh, assistance funds or whatever. So that's not going to be it. Never going to be enough. 
in our model, you know, even even zoning uh, is regulated through these uh, air rights and construction and, and development rights that you're speaking of. And we what we tried to do is create a market for them. So, you know, in, in the Duna project, when, when Eric Pichicalis uh, acquired the lot to develop that tower, uh, that tower came with a bundle of development rights, which, which sort of is a substitute for the permitting. Of course, you, you needed to comply with the regulation, uh, the construction regulation, but you had already on top of the property an envelope of space where you could build. And so if he had chosen not to fill the whole space, that 3D space that he hadn't used was his property. So he could go, he could sell that to somebody else, right? In a free market. And that mark, that person that buys that, say, say the envelope on that lot initially was set at 10 stories, uh, you know, and, and maybe Eric Pichicalis used eight stories worth of space. So two stories are, are left over. So another developer could come and say, hey, you know, I want to buy your two stories. And so, you know, they come to some agreement. Uh, and so this is a spontaneous creation of a new market. They come to this agreement. And this guy that had 10 stories now has an ability to build on 12 stories. And maybe he just builds 11, but he has one left over. So he says, hey, you know what? I'm going to sell this to the guy uh, next door that wants to develop higher than, 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 I, than, I, than I am. Um, and so you create a, a, a viable market because it's really funny how land is bought and sold in two dimensions, yet we develop on it on three dimensions. So this is an attempt to create a market so that people are buying and selling, you know, the, the, the development rights on a property uh, and how that drives uh, uh, different types of densities and different types of lo locations within the master plan where, where things happen. Um, so I, I think that's, that, that's a super powerful tool because, you know, when you, when you typically, if you go into the market to build a building and you get a permit and that permit costs 150,000, 200,000, half a million dollars, and you go smaller, you don't get any money back from the government, you know? But in this case, you sell off a piece of the thing that you didn't build, right? Which is, which is pretty cool. So you're, you're making it more affordable for people because you're taking out a lot of the inefficiencies and costs. And this goes to the lower cost housing. You know, if you can build uh, for a lower price because you can sell off, say you're going to build a three-story building because you want to save on elevators, which make it more expensive. Then what you do is the, you know, the seven levels of air rights above you, you sell them off and they help finance, you know, the development. And then, you know, a couple of years down the line, the developer says, you know what? Now this area has become super nice to make a higher end development, buys a unit, uh, buys uh, the air rights to go back up to 10 stories uh, and boom, now it's economical to do so and he creates a higher, higher, uh, uh, higher density, higher height building. Uh, the next thing, and I wasn't even thinking about that, but I was talking to an interesting startup the other day. What air rights could also be useful is air traffic. That includes drones. <laughs> so we already have aerial loop there. Um, love you to talk a bit about them. But the interesting idea was well, once you have air rights uh, and owners of these spaces, these drone companies can kind of 
pay a fee to the owner of these air rights. Yep. So instead of going into complicated negotiations with like government regulators or jurisdictions. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Uh, yeah, Aerial Loop, I think, is a very cool company. They do drone delivery sort of mid-mile, not uh, last mile. Uh, so it's sort of like a point-to-point, a -point, more like a train, I would say, that, uh, than, than a delivery truck. You know, a train goes to train station, the train station. So in this, in the area loop model, what, what they have is uh, these uh, landing hubs, uh, landing pads. And so a motorcycle that has a delivery would drive up to the, to the pad, deliver the cargo. The cargo is uploaded into the drone and the, the drone uh, take off, takes off, uh, runs the route and lands autonomously. Um, there's a bunch of monitoring, uh, monitoring systems as well. But one of the, one of the key obstacles that they faced was, you know, the red tape to, to, to do some experiments to really just go out there and try, you know, and I mean, it's, it's so amazing that we became afraid of trying things, you know, how did we become afraid of trying things in the world? And so we, we want to be the jurisdiction where people can run experiments, where people can innovate safely within a certain set of standards, uh, conscious of, of, you know, your responsibility if you cast harm. Uh, but still that you're able to create uh, a bunch of, of, of experiments. So, so drones, you know, at this point, I, I don't think anybody can say that drones are just a crazy experiment. They're still an experimental, but they're not a crazy experiment. They're everywhere. You know, everybody has drones. Military has tons of drones. So why not uh, help an innovation uh, come and test a new technology uh, within Prosper? That's exactly what we're about. So these guys did come. They set up. Uh, shop yesterday. Um, we're working with them now to set up a permanent route in the island for delivery. Uh, at this point, I think delivery is about four and a half kilos, but that's going to go up to 60 kilos uh, soon. And, and we, you know, I, I think in the short haul, what we're going to have is routes, not only on the island itself, you can imagine a really cool scenario where you're living in Prospera, you know, you get a plane full of Amazon deliveries to land on the airstrip there. You know, you have a bunch of drones ready. And, you know, the operators on the ground at the airport uh, pick up the packages, put them in the right drones, boom, those drones fly over to, to, you know, to the jurisdiction and you're sitting and you're doing a building and, uh, you know, your, your mail just came rather than going to the front desk, you go up to the top floor and you have a bunch of lockers there and you pull out your Amazon packages. It's another interesting way, by the way, in which legal innovation can sort of propel innovation in the physical world. And in a more decentralized way, right? Because Aerial Loop and another drone company that I invested in named Orchid, so they're using this kind of, they're constantly negotiations with like regulators and other jurisdictions in Latin America. And they always face that chicken egg problem, right? So show me it's safe. Like how? I can't test this in a lab. I need to yep. do commercial operations to do that. Yep. And now with Prosper, they kind of have that operational and safety data to show. So they can show them, hey, we're already doing this. We're using this and that legal template. You exactly. know, your bottleneck is you need to develop the right regulation for it. We already have some. Exactly. Right? So why don't you use those? Yeah, just copy so what, what, already, what already exists. And yeah, I think that that was that to the area loop guys was the biggest upside uh, in participating with Prosper, just pointing to a location where they could say, we're already safely operating in this location. So regulators, uh, which are very risk averse can say, oh, those guys are doing it. Okay, so that means that I can do it too without a lot of risk. So yeah, so in that sense, we, 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 I think we're very helpful 
outside of outside of the jurisdiction because this is a net benefit outside of the jurisdiction, right? Exactly. Yeah, and which also happens in the medical space, by the way. You know, very very similarly, actually, because um, you know maybe uh, outside, as you say, uh, regulation sort of is designed to drive a certain set of incentives, and it can have negative consequences. But the incentives are more and more don't do anything risky. Because if you do something risky and there's an accident, then I as regulator, my instinct is I'll regulate it more, regulate it more. And as you were saying, before we know, we're all driving at one kilometer per hour. Um, and what a horrible, that would be, it's bad enough with traffic as it is. But with Frostware, I think you, it, you're, you're, the analogy is very, very good as well, similar to the drones, where you can have a, a, a therapy that is well-crafted, you know, under strong uh, regulatory uh, compliance, but that is very, very innovative. And you can have people say, come for an ALS treatment that in the U S or in, you know, this part of the world or wherever would take forever to get approved. People from the outside can come get the therapy and leave, you know, fully aware of the risks, fully aware of the benefits, making sure nothing goes wrong, you know, that people aren't infected. I mean, there's a, there's a strong feeling of responsibility among the, the, the Prospera founders and the, and the, and the Prospera governance service provider to make sure that people, uh, are safe. And we have these very strong debates where, where people, where you have these, this, this wish to make sure that everybody is not, uh, nobody's harmed, you know, but at the other, at the other side, on the other side of the equation, I think the thing that people forget is that people do have choice and personal responsibility, right? So I think it's completely unfair to say, you took that risk and now, oh, let's democratize the effects of your choice by giving everybody, distributing the cost of, of the bad choice that you made. You, you have to take it on the, on the chin. So one of the things that we've tried to do with Prosper, of course, is, is you are... You're responsible for your acts. You know, we, we, we do not shy away from the fact that there's personal responsibility. And if you, and if you do something that has negative consequences, those are for you to take on and the system will make sure yeah. that, you know, that you do take it on. But, mm -hmm. You know, at the end of the day, you become more cautious in, in, in what it is that you do. And that becomes a self-perpetuating virtuous cycle. So I was talking to. Alex Tabarok on this podcast, who made this very interesting observation from, so he's very interested in private cities. So he was looking at Gurgaon, India, which is for the most part run by public service, by private services, right? So it's a mostly private city yeah, and it's been going very well. So it, yeah, so it has like fire departments, it has everything run by privates and everything's going really well, except for two two main things one is sewage and one is electricity okay right so the city wasn't designed in a way or it was too hard for decentralized private players to coordinate sort of set the foundations for a modern great sewage system which is typically more centralized right same with electricity right so they typically have they have like diesel generators at the bottom of buildings which are very uh uneconomic and very dirty Yep. Right. So the argument that Tabarok made or how he explained it is that there are just some industries, some technologies like sewage, like electricity, where we know how it works if we plan it centrally. 
right? And where the technology might not yet be there to plan it more decentralized, yep. right? So you face this trade-off. On the one hand, you have a very easy solution. You could just do it. You could be the one as the most powerful player who is most, he's best able to sort of cover transaction costs, right? So it's, what if you do it too centrally, then you're closing the door for other, or you make it harder for others later to innovate, right? So on the one hand, you don't want people to come to a place with a bad sewage system. But on the other hand, you also don't want to close the door to further innovation. So is that something that has occurred to you, sort of what he called the dance between centralization and decentralization? And how do you specifically um, think about specifically the sewage system and electricity in Prospera? Yeah, what we've thought about is, so the first thing I think about is a lot of these systems have two parts to them. One is the distribution. And the other is what flows through the distribution system. So in energy and power, it's the power lines. And then there's power flowing through those lines. The same what happened with water, with sewage. You can think of those two things. And for the most part in power, for example, it's quite common to have uh, power generators not on the transmission. Some cases it is, in some cases it isn't. But you can have legislation that makes the transmission lines be a be, be up for for use by third parties by paying a toll. So you know, I I I'm generating. You own the piping, say the, the power lines, and then there is a price that we agree to uh, that I can send power over those lines on. Now the problem is, of course, that if I am a big enough player, then I can say, you know what? There's no price at which you can pay me. Or the price that, I, that I'm going to charge is so expensive that I make it un uneconomical for people to buy from you. So I, I think the jury's still out in our case on how we want to do that. We, we want to promote, you know, the dance, I think it's, it's I like the, the, the concept of a dance. The dance is, we need a lot of energy. And right now we have, don't have a lot of demand. So how do you convince a player to come in and make a big investment and at the same time say, hey, by the way, you know, in a few years, there's no monopolies here. You, you're going to have to, everybody else can ride on your investment or whatever. And so I, I think one of the things that I, I'm hopeful is that uh, this will drive innovation. So, you know, there, there are experiments on power transmission without wires. I, I, I don't know the state of that right now, so I couldn't say, but my hope is that we will be able to, to solve that at some point. And, and at that moment, you just did to, to power what we did to the landlines and telephones, right? You know, you can have just a tons of tons of different players coming in and providing the service. Of course, to get there, you know, we, we need to have a, a system that's flexible enough so that number one is that we need to have power. Number two is, okay, who can provide the power? Uh, I mean, because if, if you, if you have, if you don't solve the first problem, the second problem, you know, it's never going to be, be, be solved. So, um, but but I, but again, I, I think of it as as two separate parts of distribution, the generation. The same with sewage and water. You know, there are companies that take gray water, water that has that hasn't been dirtied by biological contaminants, um, and reuse that in 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 the system, and they pay for that. You know, they they come in, uh, they may pay to get, uh, they may charge and pay to get uh, access to that water, and to use the water you know, to circle it back for gardening or for car washes or things like that. 
Uh, and so that's very important, especially on an island, because you don't want to consume all the water in the aquifer. You also want to collect water from the buildings, et cetera. Now, who builds that, right? So our idea has always been, okay, let's, let's run the economic model. Let's make it interesting enough so that a company will come and want to run that. At least it's a private ent in, uh, uh, entity running it, which means the taxpayer isn't on the hook if things go south. Well, the economic incentives are there. I prefer that model significantly to centralizing it because centralizing it uh, begins to drive all the negative incentives, you know. But, uh, you know, these guys, how long have they been in operation? I don't know, over 10 years at this point, I think, right? And so, you know, they, they have some perspective that maybe we don't have. We believe that we can do it through market forces and we're going to do our best to do it through market forces. Uh, but it may end up being one of those situations where I used to hear my friends say, look, power transmission needs to be a government, uh, you know, entity. And I would fight the point, fight the point, fight the point, because I, I believe that when you do that, then you, you're entering a, a moral hazard situation. Yeah. I think one, one thought that I had in response to Alex Tabarok's points that, you know, He's definitely someone who likes the decentralization private markets expect more, but he was kind of opening the possibility that some things could be better, at least temporarily, to be centralized instead of just making us think about that dance. But th one thing I was thinking in response, he also made this argument that regulation isn't maybe the whole story in healthcare because there's all these unregulated spaces in healthcare that haven't succeeded as much. Well, my thought in response was, It's just not automatic that once you have market forces that you get the optimal outcome, but it just increases the likelihood. Yeah, it just exactly. leaves a more open playing field. But still, like at the frontiers of some of these technologies, especially where you need to do things fundamentally different and create a zero to one, for example, like decentralizing power production and distribution or decentralizing how you do sewage in buildings or whatever, there's only very few frontier tech entrepreneurs out there that are working on these specific problems. And, you know, startups are very fragile, right? Sometimes it just doesn't come together that someone can solve the problem, at least in time, right? So the only thing you can really do with uh, an open society, an open market process is increase the likelihood of certain innovations, but it's never a guarantee. It always requires people to actually do it and actually build these things and be successful at it. Yeah, I like both of those thoughts. I, I like the thought that maybe at first you do need to have sort of a monopoly of sorts in place. Hopefully it'll be driven by a market player that uh, is willing to use their own funds for that and, and you don't have to deploy taxpayer funds. But I do think you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, if you have enough, some of these areas are unsexy enough <laughs> that not a lot of people want to participate in them. Uh, so you need, you know, the, 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 the ability to innovate in that space needs to be open for long enough so that there are some market, uh, innovators that come in and say, Hey, yeah, look, yeah. look at all this we could be doing. Yeah. Yeah. And it's still like, like I really liked, so Robin Hansen met that point when he was visiting us at the Prosper conference that made me really think and, um, right. Because riffing on Alex Severok's point, so you're the entity with the most power in Prosper. Yeah. Right. So you're best able to coordinate certain things to require coordination. You have the most context. Every new person in the Prosper ecosystem needs to learn about it, at least for a couple of weeks, right? To get all that context and get the coordination, the trust by the other stakeholders, potentially the capital that they need 
Yep. Right. So pressure and I was also the insurer of last resort and also the, the arbitrator of last resort. So that means you're faced with an incentive problem, right? So you technically have a monopoly instead of the lowest transaction cost to build some of these businesses, right? Versus you want to build a private market, right? But what if you could temporarily profit more? Maybe prosper is not in the best situation and some businesses really need to generate more revenue and more return. So do you really want to forego kind of your strongest advantage and being able to coordinate or plan most efficiently some of these things that require a lot of coordination? So that's an interesting, it is an interesting point that Robin Hansen made. Yeah. Yeah. Right? I, I, yeah. I mean, it's, it, it, it is a, a, a conundrum, you know, I think, the other, I think one of the things that happens is you have this idea of how things should be, and then you're faced with the reality of how they are. You know, at the end of the day, you can think all you want about how, oh, how do you bring a market player to provide power, but there's a building going up and by God, it needs power. So you know, we just need to get power going. And so you, you go, you use the, you go down the pragmatic route, uh, you know, but I think, I do think sunsetting also in those cases really help because you can, you can tell a market player, look, once you come here, I understand you need to get your return. So why don't you come in and you operate for five years? You know, and then after five years, you know, it could be open for competition or whatever. Or the other option is, why don't you come in here? You know, your investment is, your investment is a million dollars and, he, and you, you're demanding a 20% IRR. Okay. If within these next five years, somebody comes in and wants to buy out your contract, they can do it. You know? So I think that there, there are mechanisms to, to, to do that. But for that reason, it's also great to have people like Robin and Alex Tabarok, who might join one next conferences to just continuously reflect on some of these lessons, right? Because, you know, I, I really admire both of them. They're able to help us think practically about these challenges. Yeah. And they, you know, that coupled with entrepreneurship is, I think, really, and clear thinking go together very well, I think. No, without, yeah, I, I completely agree. I completely agree. I think there's a lot of, uh, what what excites me the most, I got to tell you, is the things that we don't know are going to happen, but we know for sure some things are going to happen. You know, we we don't know. There's a lot of things we don't know, but just not shutting the door on them prematurely, you know, before they've had a chance to arise. I mean, that is the coolest thing. So I can't uh, encourage our listeners any further than that. Like, hey, we're at now we're at the frontier, right? So we're kind of the the innovators right now, not even close to the early majority. Not even close. So joining this ecosystem, so joining right now is the best moment if you're, if there's sort of the thought of the Shackleton journey excites you, right? There's perils, there's risk, right? So things aren't kinked and figured out, right? And the situation can quickly change. But, you know, if you're successful, the rewards are... You know, you're one of the pioneers at what can potentially be, and I'm working very hard towards it, one of the most important projects in human history. Exactly. Right. It's a great asymmetrical bet, right? Great asymmetrical bet because you come in, there's risk, but boy, is there reward. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. So there's not a better time to join than now and this year, especially because we have all these conferences and sort of to really create that touch point to experience Prosper. There's so much context. I mean, this interview will be more than two hours. And again, we're scratching the surface, right? The surface. Yeah. There's so much more to learn, to discover the people involved behind that. But there's also so much space, right? So 
it's come on hop over if <laughs> yeah i just wanted uh, to to uh, extend an invitation everybody everybody and anybody that listens to this the low risk way to start is to come and visit come to one of these conferences meet some of the entrepreneurs on the ground meet the founders uh meet the executives that work there just get a sense you know if, if this is your thing you'll know it and you'll feel it and if it's not you know you get to go back home tell a great story beautiful location all the fun you had but if it is and you want to be a builder with us uh to create uh the freest most innovative jurisdiction in the world i mean what i mean what an opportunity Im imagine being able to start hong kong in the 50s i mean damn i i i always thought Wow, what a chance. If I, if that chance arose, I would take that chance. So now the chance is here again, you know? <laughs> so really the invitation is, you know, you don't have to jump in with your eyes closed. You can come down and kick the tires a little bit and just meet some of the people and see if this is for you. So come down, uh, you know, you won't regret it. I can tell you that. Anyway, so join us at these conferences. Anyone who's out there listening, um, you will... You will not regret this. Maybe it has the same, or it's very likely to have the same impact that you didn't have on me. So if I was just wanting to stay and build a business here, eventually build a family. I move here together with my wife. I'm going to buy a Duna apartment. Gabriel, it was epic to finally have you on this show. I feel like we've talked for a long time, but we haven't even, we, we just started scratching the surface. Yeah. From personal experience, Gabriel is super approachable for entrepreneurs who approach him. Um, so that's just take this opportunity connect with Gabriel how can people best connect with you Gabe? well um on Twitter I, I'm uh, it's, a, it's a sort of a strange name but it's at Gabriel HDM email me at, at uh, G Delgado at Prospera.hn that's probably the, the best way um yep. yeah that's that's where I'm most active I would say fantastic Gabriel, it was epic to have you on. I'm looking forward to be back on the island together and to, and, and change the world. So thanks yep, for coming let's on. Let's do it. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot, Nick. Take care. Bye. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.